Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, no relationship to Kim Jong un. I'm a left wing pundit and a writer at The Atlantic and Vogue. And I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with the wisest and funniest people in science and media and politics that help make what's happening today clearer. Our world has been turned upside down, and on The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it. We got one hell of a show today. Congressman Richie Torres of New York's 15th District joins us to talk about what's going down in Congress. Then we'll talk to the Washington Post's Plumline blog author, Greg Sargent, about the latest developments in the January 6th committee and Biden's bad messaging. But first, let's have some fun. Hi, Andy. Hi, Molly. How are you? I'm good. Hi, Molly. Hi, Andy. <laughs> so we're going to call it the Biden boom, okay? Ooh, that sounds uh, interesting. It sounds just a little bit disturbing and probably will be made fun of for it, but um, that is the hope. The economic data for our man, the guy who will hopefully keep democracy going is that he has just been killing it on the economy and that unemployment claims are the lowest they've been in 50 years. How is this bad for Joe Biden? It's not. I mean, look, in a in a perfect and just world, it's obviously not bad for Joe Biden. But <laughs> but I firmly believe and you may not understand this about me, Molly. I firmly believe we do not live in a perfect and just world. What? I know I don't come across that way at all as, you know, cynical or anything like that. There's a couple of things. So I, I, get, I, I do agree that it's all good news. Let me play the cynics advocate, I guess, and say that there are two reasons it's maybe not good for Biden, even though it should be. One is when you say unemployment claims have are at their lowest level, which is generally good, that could also mean that, and it can be spun as well, people have left, left the workforce and they're not coming back because the government is giving them too much money, which is exactly how it's going to be spun. And I think it's also fair to say that there are certainly are, and we all believe this, and as a liberal, I certainly believe this, that there are people who've given up right. and who've fallen out of the workforce, you know, and aren't even trying. And that's something we absolutely need to talk about. And that's why these numbers are not infallible. But- if Donald Trump were given these numbers, he would dine the fuck out on them. Oh, of course. Absolutely. And every, you know, every sycophant in the Republican Party, i.e. everyone in the Republican Party, would be right behind him. The other thing is, though, like I've always believed that the economic numbers and, and, and like the strength of the economy doesn't matter as much as what people perceive the economy to be, at least in the political sense, even though all these numbers are like objectively great. I mean, GDP is up, you know, what, like seven, eight percent or something like that. I mean, all, all these numbers are are good. And as you said, if, if, if the former guy had these kinds of numbers, he'd be spinning them like crazy. But the problem is you've got a lot of people out there who and a lot of it, I'm, I'm not blaming those people because a lot of this stuff we all know, like the real world kind of lags behind the indicators. So these numbers may look good, but people don't feel it for like, you know, a half a year or eight months or nine months. It's like the Dow is not the economy. Right. Absolutely. So you still got people out there who who look around and they say, well, I'm hurting. My friends are hurting. So these numbers are garbage. These numbers don't apply to me. That's why cynical me says, even though these numbers are great, they may not be great politically for Joe Biden. Also, let's add on top of that, this administration has not been great about selling itself, I don't think. Right. And that needs to change. Like, I don't know if they need new people or what, but they are, they have just done, I think, a fairly horrible job of selling themselves. And I think that's one of the reasons you get, you know, you get a lot of bad press coverage when when you're not out there making your case. And I don't feel like they're doing a great job of making their case. I hope that changes. I really do, especially about these numbers. Yes, I agree. There is a media vacuum, which is now filled by Ben Shapiro. 
and MAGA News 123. And I do agree. And I think it's a real fucking problem for this administration. I also think you have, and Carvel talked about this when we had him on the pod recently, which is you have people in this administration who are gifted orators. And they aren't necessarily Joe Biden, but love him or hate him, Mayor Pete is very good on Fox News. Yes. And he should be out on Fox News every day. I mean, why the fuck not? Yeah, like, I understand why Fauci doesn't want to go on Fox News. Why would you want to go on a place right. that compared you to Yosef Mengele? Mengele, you know? yes. <laughs> but I, I, I have never sort of subscribed to that. And look, I also understand, like, not going on certain shows on Fox News, like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, I think, is just a waste of fucking time. But I do think going on and talking to Brett Baer, going on, you know, certainly talking to Chris Wallace on Sundays and stuff like that, I, I 100% agree with you. I think I think they should be there every week or every day hammering their message. If it's someone like Judge or or someone else who, who's just very good in that kind of situation, then absolutely get them out there. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like there's an information vacuum and it's being filled by the worst actors. And until this administration takes that seriously, we're in a lot of trouble. I mean, we're probably in a lot of trouble either way, but. Yeah. You know, the thing I keep thinking about to tie this back to our podcast, because everything's about this podcast, is when we had Ron Brownstein on, is he talked about how the administration keeps saying, well, we're the greatest administration ever assembled, but then they don't know that they're fighting a different warfare that they haven't adapted. The most shared meme last week was this ridiculous thing. Marjorie Taylor Greene shared it, and it was all these overly inflated prices for things and percentages. Things have gone up under inflation, but that's the most shared meme, and we, any of us who have a clue know that that's a lot of the game right now. Right. right. We're in a meme world, and we have a Democratic administration that thinks that Walter Cronkite is still uh, <laughs> right. you know, controlling the media. The, the larger issue there is how the hell do you fight against people who have no compunction about just making stuff up? Right. Like, it's not easy. And, you know, you can say what you want about politicians throughout the years, and certainly I have, about not telling the truth and stuff like that. But this is wholly different. Like, this is a different situation. This isn't people who spin. This is people who just outright lie, just outright make up stuff, and they don't care. You can't, you can call them on it, but they don't care. They're not, they're never going to admit that they're making it up. And the people they're make, that who are reading the stuff don't believe you when you say they're making it up. So I, Personally, I, I am sort of at a loss as to how you combat that because the truth that we're in, you know, we're in like a post-factual world and I don't, I don't understand how that works. I really don't. And I don't understand how you combat it. No, I don't either. And I think smarter people than us don't know how to do it either, which is not good. Yeah. Because as you said, they're still, like, you know, they're, they're fighting the last war. You know, they're fighting the war where Republicans put one, like, like we were just saying with the numbers, like Republicans, the opposition will say, well, that number's not good because X. And then you say, no, that number's good because Y. And that's sort of what they're used to doing. They're not used to fighting a thing where someone's, where the number is nine and the opponents are saying the number is actually 27. Yeah. And you're like, well, no, it's not. And again, we we're talking about this before, like making a mistake is not the same thing as malfeasance. Exactly. And ultimately, that is one of the central tenets of the right wing media is that when yeah. mainstream media makes a mistake, it's the same as if they had intentionally made a mistake. And so their listeners get very programmed. You know, there are a number of reasons why the right wing media has become so galvanized. But it's a force. And I don't think that the people on the left or the people who are safeguarding our democracy are taking it seriously enough. Otherwise, they'd be safeguarding our democracy. Well, I'm going to disagree with you. The whole reason this went wrong is that they set the Christmas tree on fire outside Fox News. By the way... <laughs> The best thing to ever happen to, you know, I mean, Tucker did a whole, you know, he did what, I mean, he did half his show was about that Christmas tree. <laughs> I, walk, I walk by it every day. I'm, I'm not saying this is a Reichstag fire situation. <laughs> I don't think it is. Oh, oh. I don't, I, I, I honestly don't think it is. I think it's some nut job who did it, but yeah. it could not have been better for them. Like they could not be more happy that this happened is, is what I'm saying. Yes, they're definitely, I mean, this was pretty much the best thing that they could have because now they can message on it. And you saw Meghan McCain immediately, you oh, know, New York yeah. City is a hellhole. Yeah, and don't get me started. And this is further proof. <laughs> 
Your friend, Megan McCain. As someone who works next door to Fox News every day, I can tell you what the hellhole is, is having to be around their employees and listen to the shit they say in the courtyard. <laughs> I used to be one of those people, Jesse. Yes, yes, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> back, then I, back then I smoked, and so I would take a lot of smoke breaks. And there was a lot of, a lot of shaking of the heads and, you know, can you believe the shit we're airing today? There was a, there was a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, no, it 100%. We're seeing in real time a kind of, you know, there are a lot of 1930s parallels, and it's really scary. I mean, in the States, too. I mean, they had they had Charles Lindbergh using the same exact Trumpy slogan in the States. So Yeah, and, and as you said, you know, Tucker Carlson can go on his show with this burning of this dumb tree— and say it's an attack. It's a it's an attack on Christianity, which is exactly what he did, and and make it a whole thing. And they can talk about it all day long. And that's you know, it's just it is tough to fight against that. It really is, especially when you know the audience is basically a cult. And also remember, you have a lot of bad actors like Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. I just saw that the January sixth commission has released the how to steal the election PowerPoint. And I would like to talk about it for a minute. Who amongst us hasn't made one of those? It has PowerPoint slides. It has talking points. Thank God these people are idiots. This is the number <laughs> one talking point, okay, on Trump's how to overturn an election and destroy democracy. The Chinese systematically gained control over our election system, constituting a national security emergency. Yeah. Okay. The electric voting machines were compromised and cannot be trusted to provide an accurate vote count. To restore confidence, the failsafe of counting the paper ballots must be used to determine who won the election for president, senators, and congressional representatives. Oh, yes. And then it shows how different states were actually won by Trump. Of course, they were not. And then there's a lot of crazy things that look like something the MyPillow guy cooked up. (laughs) And probably because they are. Exactly. What do you think? I have to say, and, you know, I was was reading this power, not the entire PowerPoint, because I I'm not that insane, but I was reading the, you know, the list of of some of the slides and stuff like that. The weirdest thought struck me only because Mike Pence, who I find otherwise wholly loathsome. Right. I think every sort of every day we are learning more and more that uh, that, that nut job, Mike Pence, may may have actually saved the country. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's amazing to think that because, as I said, he's completely loathsome on, on every other thing. And I don't want to lionize the guy and, and put him on Mount Rushmore or anything like that next to Trump. It does feel more and more like he really, on that one thing, he stepped up. And given all these, you know, these plans that we're now seeing were, were floating around for exactly how to overturn a fair election, we are seeing more and more that, that, that he it may not be overstating it to say that he saved democracy in America. And I feel, I feel really weird saying that, believe me. Yeah. But I'm coming around to that more and more as more and more information comes out. Am I crazy? I hate this conversation and want to die, but I think you're probably right. <laughs> I don't even want to think about ultimately what would have happened. But yes, I mean, certainly, it certainly looks that way. Because you can say, you know, well, but there are other safeguards in place. But they really did. And look, their plans may not have come to fruition because, as you said, they're they're kind of, in the end, they're not that bright. It, it may be that you don't have to be that bright if you have the right people in the right places. And I think that's what we're learning. And that's, you know, the whole other story. But that's what's going on. That's what's so terrifying about a lot of the Republican gains in the on the state level and what they're doing to, to voting and, and what we're probably going to see in 2024. I mean, that's terrifying but a whole different subject. But again, I, I am aware that I sound like a lunatic or, or, or I, I don't even know what I sound like when I'm sitting here saying Mike Pence saved democracy is such a weird thing to say <laughs> and actually think that it might be true. I don't know. I mean, I certainly think that Mike Pence did the right thing, which is terrifying. I may have not taken my meds today, so it could be that. If we want to take it to an even weirder place, I mean, think about the proposition that Mike Pence saved democracy at the urging of Dan Quayle. (laughs) Wow, yeah, that's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God, I didn't even think of that. Oh my God, you're absolutely right. Steve Bannon kind of originally 
like we've been seeing a lot in the Republican Party, he's the brains of the operation, unfortunately. He was decided well, he was going to gum up. Oh, yeah, that's true. He decided he was going to gum up the works with doing a lawsuit and avoiding all of this. Now we're seeing Mark Meadows do a lawsuit, yet Ali Alexander's there today kind of doing his little war against everybody. Where do we think this is heading? Nowhere good. <laughs> yeah i i mean yeah you got meadows he's he's suing the justice department correct that's the lawsuit he's suing congress it says sure i mean he'd sue whatever he wants it's trump world maybe i'm missing something here why don't these people just show up and just take and plead the fifth and not say anything some of them do, like Jeffrey Clark did that. Right. Yeah, but they're going to get Jeffrey Clark, too, because they can't fucking do that. Certainly with executive privilege, there's no executive privilege. He's not the executive anymore. There is no privilege. With the fifth, Jeffrey Clark can't plead the fifth for everything. I mean, they can lock him up. But yes, going and pleading the fifth makes more sense than just not showing up at all and suing them. Or filing a lawsuit. Right. Is what, is what I'm saying. Yes. But you know, it's Trump world, so no one is smart. No, I know. And everyone is crazy. But also the point is to gum up, I, I think, was it Jesse that just said, to gum up the works? And then, so what you have is you, you, you then have, you know, well, the the Congress is saying this, but, but, but Mark Meadows is suing Congress. So who's to say who's right? Right. Well, that's the two sides of it. Right, exactly. And and that's how, you know, again, that's how you that's how you win the you know, the spin wars and you win the right-wing media and you know, you just you just basically throw shit against the wall until something sticks and then you know, it's like, well, is this a wall with shit on it or is this a pile of shit that has some concrete in it? And uh, <laughs> who can say really? Yeah. Do you remember like three weeks ago or as I like to think of it, 10 years ago when fa- <laughs> when we discovered that Facebook's algorithms radicalized people? Yes. What happened with that? I, it was so long ago, Molly. I honestly don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right? That nothing ever happened with that, right? We just discovered that Facebook is is breeding a group of radicals by with their algorithms, and that was it. Then we learned what the metaverse was. Justin Bieber did a concert, and we all forgot. <laughs> exactly. And Mark Zuckerberg gave some money to whatever, and that was it. Yeah. That was all under the Eisenhower administration, right? That's what it, <laughs> like that's what it feels like. It really does. Like as you said it, I was like, "Oh yeah, that was a big story." It was like, <laughs> like two weeks ago. It was I know. Two weeks yeah. ago. I know. Yeah. So speaking of lawsuits, Tish James made some very big moves. Oh yeah. In her Trump lawsuit and dropping out of running for governor, what do you what are you guys seeing there, Molly? Do you think they're related? I hope they're related. I actually was thinking about that because. Tish James was pretty much the front runner, right? I think so. I mean, the front runner was Kathy Hochul. Yeah. Because she's got the job. But Tish James was sort of thought of as if there were one person who could beat her, it would be Tish James. Right. So the fact, and and I had, had thought in my head, Cuomo, and obviously Tish James is not at all like Cuomo, but Cuomo was the AG who sunk Schneiderman and then went and became governor. So there is a well-worn path (laughs) of AGs who then sink governors in New York State. And she did release all these text messages last week. You'll remember the text messages. Yeah, the ones that got Chris fired. Uh Uh-huh. So it is interesting to me. She would have been in as good a position as ever to replace the governor or at least to give Kathy Hochul a real run for the money. Right. I thought it was interesting, and it made me—I hoped that the reason she wasn't running was because she had this big case against Trump, but we don't really know. Right. It's just, you know, the timing is certainly raises an eyebrow that these happened, like, real within a day of each other, really. And I don't think, you know, I don't know how fascinating this is to anyone who doesn't live in New York, but <laughs> there, were, there were no signs that I'm aware of that, that James was considering not running. Or, you know, ending, ending a run. Yeah. I mean, I think that came as sort of a shock to everyone. You know, look, it may also be she was, I think, trailing Hochul in the polls by a decent margin. 
And she may have just, maybe she just read the tea leaves or sat down with her advisors and they said, and they told her, hey, this is not the right time, you know, and maybe if you, you've got this lawsuit against Trump, you know, play this out and then, you know, next time around, it's all you. She's only been in the job for two years or not even. Exactly. And also one of former Governor Cuomo's big things was that, you know, the whole thing with James against him was politically motivated that she wanted to be governor. And this kind of takes that off the table. And, I, you know, I don't I don't know how much people believe that spin and probably not much. But but at any rate, it does sort of remove that whole, you know, well, the whole the whole thing against Andrew Cuomo was just political because you know, Tish James wanted wanted his job. So it, it may be in the long run that this is very, very good for her and that it's actually a smart sort of long play, you know, as opposed to just going for the brass ring right away. Yeah, I hope that's true. It's so weird, though, because I keep thinking of like, it seems like all these people have learned these lessons that like you should just start running. Like it seems like Beto follows that, but then everybody talks about how Chris Christie didn't run uh, in 2012 when he should have. I, I, it's kind of shocking to see a politician not just go for it. No, I agree, especially in this day and age, like you said. Again, love him or hate him, the idea that Buttigieg ran for president with his resume was like a little eyebrow-raising. But it worked. It definitely worked, and you, you know, these people are not necessarily running for the office they're running for. In his case, he got a nice, you know, federal job, whatever. To your point, Jesse, I think you're right that people, now the game is you just you just run. You know, Andrew Yang, you just run. In his case, it didn't work out. But, you know, Which I think he good. really thought he was going to be mayor of New York because of his failed presidential campaign. And that's probably what he wanted the whole time, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I agree with you, Jesse. That's why this, you know, I think when I saw this news, you know, my first reaction was, whoa, like she's yeah. not running? Like everybody runs. <laughs> it's true. Well, that's why women are kind of better than men, no offense or anything. <laughs> Hey folks, if you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or I prefer Don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows. I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... 
I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Congressman Richie Torres represents New York's 15th district. Welcome back to New Abnormal, Richie Torres. Always a pleasure to be with you, Molly. One of the things you and I talked about recently was you're a freshman congressman and that you never thought you would pass three major pieces of legislation. Can you talk a little bit about that? I feel like I've had the most unusual experience as a member of Congress, right? If someone had said to me two years ago, that I would become a member of Congress during an infectious disease outbreak and vote to impeach an outgoing president, all of that would happen within the first two weeks. I would have said that sounds like a movie. And then if someone would have said to me, the Democratic Party would pass not one, not two, but three multi-trillion dollar investments in the future of our country, I would have said, if you believe that, then I have a bridge to sell you. (laughs) So I have been amazed by the sheer magnitude of the change that we've achieved in the United States Congress. It's an enormous amount of policy that's been passed. And I feel like we haven't really seen Democrats capitalize on this. Do you notice this? You're exactly right. Look, and I I will offer self-reflection. The Democrats are more effective at governing, but Republicans are more effective at messaging. Yeah. And if we refuse to clearly define what we stand for, then others will will do it for us. Um, And we've seen a concerted effort by the conservative movement, by right-wing media, to caricature the Build Back Better Act, filling the void that we largely left behind. Most members of the public know the Build Back Better Act by the price tag. Right. And I thought it was a grave miscalculation for us to put the price tag out there and allow it to become the defining fact of the Build Back Better Act. Like the focus should not be on the price tag, the focus should be on the policies and the peoples whose lives are lifted by those policies. And we've lost focus. And the misconceptions about the Build Back Better Act could be so ingrained that we could be beyond the point of no return. It's hard to tell. You've been very successful. Some people don't know your district, but you had a really tough race to Congress. Can you talk a little bit about how you won. So I ran in the most fiercely contested congressional campaign in New York City. I was one of about 10 candidates. And the leading candidate in my race was a man by the name of Ruben Diaz, who was known to be the most anti-LGBTQ, anti-choice Democrat in New York State politics. He was essentially a Trump Republican masquerading as a Democrat. And the conventional wisdom held that he was well positioned to win because he had almost universal name recognition within the congressional district. And he was a more, you know, he's been a powerful brand name in Bronx politics longer than I've been alive. Yeah. But against all odds, you know, not only did I win, but I defeated him so decisively that I sent him into retirement, which is exactly where he belongs. (laughs) So I want to talk to you about one of the things that Democrats are really struggling with, and I've now read like about 55 pieces about it, and I'm even more stressed than I was before, is attracting Latino voters. Talk to me. Well, first, we have to call Latinos Latinos and not Latinx. Yes. It's important to address a community by the terms that it chooses. Right. Rather than choose ter- the terms for the community. So true. So that's, that's, so that's one. But we have to be careful not to treat the Latino community as a model. You know, the Puerto Ricans and Dominicans in the South Bronx are quite different from the Cubans and Venezuelans in Florida. We're quite different from Mexicans in South Texas. And we have to be careful not to treat the Latino vote as a monolith and not to take historical constituencies of the Democratic Party for granted because we can lose those constituencies and we have lost those constituencies. In, in New York City, in a deep blue city, we lost, the Democratic Party lost the Asian vote. Yeah. Because of issues like public safety and education. And we saw that education became a losing issue for the Democrats in Virginia. I think Democrats underestimated how angry a lot of these parents are. And I say this as a parent of school-aged children myself, about school closures. You cannot come off as condescending right. to parents. right? If, if, if education becomes a losing issue for our party, we are done. Period because there's nothing that parents care more about than the education of their children. And you have to be mindful of their concerns 
and you have to engage with them. You know, we have to avoid what I call the Adley Stevenson syndrome. So there's a story about Adley Stevenson. You know, he delivered a speech and a woman approached him and said, Mr. Stevenson, I'm inspired. Every thinking American is going to vote for you. And he replies, yes, madam, but I need a majority of the American people. <laughs> that kind of condescension will cost you elections. Yeah. And we have to be careful not to appear condescending to parents who have concerns about the education of their children. We have to engage them. How should Democrats talk? to parents. I mean, how do you walk that line of supporting the teachers union and supporting teachers, but also being able to say, you know, I mean, I think the thing that I think we in the media have done a bad job of is explaining this is a once in a century, hopefully, pandemic. And so business is not as usual. Well, it depends on the issues, but you're right. Yes, COVID-19 was a cataclysmic event, the likes of which we've never seen before. It radically restructured our society, at least for a period of time. But we should reaffirm that there are going to be no school closings. There's going to be no loss of learning and that we're committed to providing children with a high standard of education that they deserve, to which they are legally and morally entitled. Uh, and that parents have a have a stake and should have a role in the education of their children. We should embrace the parental role in the education of children. There was a lot of feeling in Virginia. And again, Virginia historically always goes, almost always has gone the opposite of the presidency. So I feel like when you're talking about this McAuliffe loss, you have to talk about that because it is historically always goes opposite of the presidency. But I just am curious to know, do you think that it was, you know, I th- it seemed to me that Virginians thought that if they nominated someone who looked like Joe Biden, they could cash in on that kind of centrist goodwill. Do you think that's what happened? Each race has its own dynamics, but I feel like there is, we have a branding challenge. And I'm speaking from my experience in New York City. I In the mayoral election, in the 2020 one mayoral election in a deep blue city, we we lost the East Bronx, we lost the Asian voting queens, we lost Southern Brooklyn, right? So the, the, the branding challenges that we have as a party are not confined to New Jersey and Virginia. Uh, it is a national problem that we have to address. What do you think the number one thing Democrats should be doing? There's a, so there are two competing theories, right? One theory holds that we have to focus on issues that appeal to swing voters who decide the outcome of elections. And the other theory holds that we have to appeal, that we have to prioritize issues that mobilize the base, that turn out the vote, because winning elections as well, turning out the vote. I would submit to you that we can do both. We ought to find issues that appeal to swing voters and mobilize the base. And the best example is uh, the cost of prescription drugs. We should run on a platform of empowering the federal government to negotiate more affordable drug prices, driving a hard bargain with big pharma, capping the price of insulin at $35 a month. Those are the policies on which we should campaign. Those are winning issues, bread and butter issues for the Democratic Party. Yeah. Why isn't that happening? Your your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) It could be that there is a consultant industrial complex. So you're saying that there's a uh, a culture of lobbying and, you know, by the way, it's like I read all these newsletters and I see, you know, no one should not be able to afford health care sponsored by Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, Like, okay, uh, we are serious about environmental commitments sponsored by Exxon. You're young, very annoyingly. You're extremely young. What? I used to be younger. (laughs) True. I, you're not that young. I mean, you're 34, which is younger than 30, Jesse. 30, and I. 30, oh, Jesus. Okay. So thir- you're 33. You're uh, 10 years younger than Jesse and I, who are really fucking old. But there are now, what, 20, 25 members of Congress in their 30s? I forget the exact number, but we are, we have never been younger. I mean, Congress historically has been a gerontocracy. Yeah. What do you guys get that they don't get? Again, I want to be careful not to treat young voters as the young members of Congress as a monolith, like we very well. Right. Well, not not all of us are Democrats. Right. I'm a Democrat, but not every millennial is a Democrat. In fact, the youngest member of Congress is a Republican. And not all of the millennial Democrats are progressive Democrats. So it's not as if we collectively have one opinion. But we're less, you know, in Congress, there is a fetish for tradition. And 
we're less wedded to tradition. We're less wedded to a structure that values seniority above all else. One of the things I've noticed with the younger Congress people is that you guys are much better at talking directly. I mean, that's actually not completely true, but largely better at talk, talking directly to constituents. I do find that the young members are more willing to play the outside game. You know, like Congress is an institution that historically has been centered around the inside game, as far as I can tell. I think the new young members are more willing to be agitators, more willing to play the outside game. And the willingness to play the outside game partly explains the emergence of the Progressive Caucus as a, as a powerful force in the negotiations around the Build Back Up. For a long time, I was always told that small dollar donations would democratize the Congress and the Senate, that small dollar donations would do that. We are seeing on the right that small dollar donations are actually encouraging racist insanity. Are you shocked that this happened? And I mean, I guess I should have seen this coming, but I'm just so surprised by it. Well, keep in mind that the pool of small donors are much wider, much wealthier than the rest of the population. The notion of the small donor pool as representative of America is questionable. My impression is that those on the extremes tend to generate the most fundraising online. It's no accident that in the first quarter of 2021, the member of Congress who raised the most online was Marjorie Taylor Greene, right after voting to decertify the results of the election. So I would not take for granted that small donor online fundraising is necessarily conducive to liberal democracy. Oh, so depressing. (laughs) Thank you so much, Richie. I hope you'll come back. I will always come back to depression. (laughs) Thank you. Craig Sargent is the author of the Washington Post Plumline blog. Welcome back to the new abnormal, Greg Sargent. Thanks for having me on again. We're so excited to have you. So let's talk first about January 6th and Mark Meadows. What is going on? Well, the latest is that Mark Meadows is suing the January 6th Select Committee uh, and uh, Nancy Pelosi to try to stop the subpoena that's been levied on him. And of course, by spectacular coincidence, if he can get that subpoena (laughs) scrapped, then he won't have to turn over a whole lot of information that will shed a great deal of light on Trump's coup attempt. So... I think, as others have remarked, he's already in very hot water with Trump for revealing in his book that Trump tested positive for COVID before the first presidential debate. And now he's like frantically trying to make amends uh, with Trump by, you know, fighting this uh, fighting with this lawsuit to, to help prevent the country from learning about Trump's effort to overthrow our political system. By the way, that is such an amazing story about Mark Meadows book. Like, did he not realize when he was writing it that perhaps this might piss off Trump? It's really an incredibly strange situation, for sure. One of my favorite things about it is that he says in there, at least according to the Guardian account, I have I have not gotten a chance to check out the book itself. But according to the Guardian account, he essentially says, we told everyone in Trump's inner circle that he should be treated as if he's positive meaning he should be treated as if he's contagious. Right. (laughs) That's quite a thing to admit, you know, at the same time that you're admitting that you didn't tell the debate organizers. And by the way, I I wrote about this, but I find it incredible that his Trump's whole family sat maskless at the debate after knowing this. I mean, we don't know for sure exactly what they knew, but if it's true, as Meadows said, according to The Guardian, that the word was put out to Trump's inner circle that he should be treated as contagious, then they would have had to know. In another world where people cared about public health, you know, I mean, there's culpability there. Don't we think, though, this is the perfect metaphor, though, that his thing has always been like the allegiance to him is do what I say and pretend this virus doesn't exist. And this is just more proof of it. It's amazing. Yeah, the entire Trump movement kind of coalesced behind the idea that at best, COVID was just no big deal, and we didn't really have to do a lot. And and at worst, that it was just a plot of his liberal enemies to bring him down. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievably shocking, I think. One of my favorite moments with this Mark Meadows stuff was when uh, Mark Meadows was on TV denying what he had written in his own book. (laughs) Well, you know, the thing about that is that for, for, for this kind of, in this alternate you know, disinformation universe that they all inhabit, something like that can just kind of pass without even being remarked on, right? 
Well, and also right wing media gives a complete pass to any Republican lying. Yeah. And and so even no matter how ridiculously self-contradictory or like blatantly provably false, it just seamlessly gets incorporated into their into their universe. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. And I mean, I think it's the false equivalency. The right wing media is able to equate a mainstream media mistake with the Republican media malfeasance. Right. You know, we're dealing with some very deep pathologies and it's not easy to know what to do about it. So Mark Meadows is going to sue the January 6th committee. Is there any precedent for this? I mean, it seems not. What's interesting about the lawsuit is, and and also what's really wretched and disgusting about it, is that it essentially argues that the committee's subpoena has no, quote unquote, valid legislative purpose, right? And so then they say that because congressional investigations have to be tied to legislative activity of some kind, then, then that's invalid, right? But the thing is that the January 6th committee actually has lots of legitimate elect, uh, legislative purposes, right? Like, as, you know, one is that they've already said that they're considering revising the Electoral Count Act, which structures how uh, the electoral uh, college is counted in, in Congress. You know, all the holes in that law are exactly what Trump tried to exploit to, to subvert Biden's victory, right? And so, you know, learning about why it is that they thought the Electoral Count Act could be exploited to, you know, subvert an election obviously has a legitimate legislative purpose because it could inform how to reform the law, right, the ECA. And secondly, uh, the other thing that they're talking extensively about, or Democrats are anyway, I don't know if the committee is, but well, Adam Schiff is talking a whole lot about uh, revising congressional or strengthening congressional oversight over conversations between the White House and the Department of Justice, right? And and we've learned now uh, that the level of extraordinary pressure that Trump put on the Justice Department to create a you know to to create the impression that the election was fraudulent, right? was really incredibly corrupt. And so learning about that could inform that legislative push, right? But to Meadows and Trump, right, none of this is legitimate. None of these things need to be done because nothing was ever done wrong on their part with the coup attempt. And that, to me, is what drives me so crazy about the argument, right? The idea that the that there's no le- legitimate legislative purpose in reforming our system protect, to protect against another coup attempt is like saying there was no coup attempt. It doesn't matter. It seems to me that Mark Meadows suing the January 6th committee is very Trumpy. Yeah. I mean, in fact, Trump himself in his lawsuit against, uh, which is trying to block the, the committee from getting a whole bunch of documents, particularly from the National Archives and so forth, makes makes the same argument. He says, there's no legitimate legislative purpose here. But they don't have the same lawyers or anything. As far as I know, not. But I mean, we should really pause to talk about how, how amazing the argument is. Congress has no legislative purpose in trying to reform laws and, and in order to protect itself and the political system from getting attacked again. They're just trying to throw the pasta on the wall and see what sticks. As I argued in, in today's thing, the big question right now, or a big question, is whether we could possibly get 10 Republican senators to reform the Electoral Count Act to prevent another coup attempt or to tighten o- oversight over White House DOJ communications. And, you know, that seems like pretty borderline hopeless, <laughs> but it's not like entirely impossible, right? Like you could sort of see how 10 Republicans might say, well, Maybe if we do these reforms, then the next Trump won't try to pressure us to steal the next one. Right. The next Trump is Trump, too, by the way. He's the right, former right. Trump, the too. Trump, yes. Who is Trump. Yes. Maybe, you know, if, if, if such a scheme would be less likely to succeed due to reforms, then it would be less likely to be attempted. And you read in a lot of this reporting that some of the Republicans who, who did stand up to what was happening came under enormous pressure to break, right? And so what I keep saying is, why wouldn't Republicans who legitimately don't want to go through this again, try to make it less likely to happen? It would protect them from pressure. Right. I mean, if you undermine democracy, 
it's not just bad for Democrats. It's bad for the markets. It's bad for everyone. I mean, this cascades into everywhere. I mean, a lot of these Republican senators are incredibly rich and have a lot of money in the public markets. Public markets don't like dictators. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not really thinking this through very well. No, they certainly are. And, and, and sort of one thing that supports that point in maybe an interesting way is kind of saw some of these corporations step out there pretty far in supporting voting rights. For example, when they uh, came out against things like the Georgia voter suppression law. And I know there's this tendency on Twitter and, and so forth to just kind of say, oh, LOL, it's just for show. You know, you know they're doing that. They're just doing this because it's easy. They're putting out statements. It means nothing. But I don't really, I don't really buy that. I think it kind of is an important tell that the corporations on some level feel pressure from below, that is their customers and and their shareholders and shareholders to not be aligned with trying to overturn democracy and trying to, to make it as hard as possible to vote. And, and so you can kind of see how you can kind of see glimpses of what you're talking about there, which is that at least some of, of corporate America and some of the business world doesn't want to be all that aligned with the Republican extreme radicalization and sees that this is actually something that could be harmful to business over time. Yeah, it's a sort of short-sightedness that is kind of spectacular. But then again, are we surprised from the pro-business party, LOL? And still, Republicans get, you know, if you look at all this kind of polling, the the pervasive wisdom is that Republicans are better with the economy, which is shocking to me. Yeah, that is definitely a source of eternal frustration, for sure. (laughs) You also wrote about this, can Democrats sell Biden's agenda? New ads test a different approach. Can we talk about this? Because again, this is like an obsession of mine. Why can't You know, if voters knew that Democrats want to give you free glasses and cap insulin at thirty five dollars, it seems to me like Democrats should never lose another election. And yet. Yeah. I mean, Dan Pfeiffer, who used to work for Obama uh, and now has his own substack on some of this stuff, did a good piece the other day, essentially arguing that we're in a very complicated information environment when it comes to the economy. And Neil Irwin did a very good piece for The Times on this, where he essentially said the core contradiction of the Biden economy is that by many metrics, things are improving pretty quickly. Um, But at the same time, there are conflicting signals being sent in the form of things like high gas prices and inflation and supply chain problems. And it's a little hard for Democrats to, quote unquote, message their way through that. And, and making that worse, of course, is the fact that they haven't passed BBB yet. And, and so the story of BBB has essentially been one of factional infighting among Democrats and congressional sausage making and kind of a general sense that why can't they get shit done? Right. Um, and so what these guys, this super PAC, or I don't know if it's super PAC, this, this organization uh, building back together, which is essentially the Democratic group that is devoted to selling BBB, essentially is trying to speak to voter concerns once that's been established, essentially create a frame in which they're saying we get that things are hard right now and complicated and here's what we're doing. To, to make that better. And, and, and then they go through, they pivot to a very specific conversation about what's in BBB and how it will bring your costs down on healthcare, childcare, and all the rest of it. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that that kind of messaging will work. You got to pass BBB though. <laughs> Republicans have filled the vacuum left by local news with these mega one, two, three news and all of these sites that provide content for Facebook. And as you know, Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire and Bongino's Bongino Report and Tim Pool's Timcast. I mean, so you have all of these pretty disreputable news sites that are sort of filling the local news vacuum. Is that what's really giving Democrats such a hard time? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I would maybe take it even broader. Let's, let's take the Virginia gubernatorial election. 
So the mainstream press essentially was telling a story in which, okay, Glenn Youngkin is doing some really clever positioning. He's subtly talking to the Trump base, but he's also selling himself as a suburban dad, as a cheerful suburban dad. And the media thinks that that's aggressive coverage because it's pointing out that he's doing two things at once. Aha. The message that ends up sending to the public is that this guy isn't really Trump. Uh, Flirtations with Trump aren't really a big deal. Right. And meanwhile, right wing media is blasting this roar of stuff about critical race theory but really, really visceral stuff, not, not like a polite discussion of it, very visceral, and just blasting it into the Republican base, right? Youngkin essentially has his fingerprints not on that at all. Occasionally, he'd go on Fox News and he would say something like, the FBI is trying to, is going after parents, which is utter horseshit. But he would only do that on Fox News, and then he'd be the cheerful suburban dad and, and who, who wants to fund schools and just wants, the only reason he wants to end critical race theory is because he wants to honor Martin Luther King's legacy and unite the country, you know, unite Virginia. Democrats face this kind of immense informa- information disadvantage because they don't have anything comparable to keep the conversation going directly with their base the way Republicans do. And I think those what you're talking about, those types of, of specific guys you were talking about, like Bongino, they kind of are a subset of that, right? Yeah. They are not bound by the truth in any possible way. So they have a huge advantage to regular mainstream media because they can just say whatever. And I think we talk about this, but we don't talk about it enough with Fox. A great example is Lara Logan compared Dr. Anthony Fauci, lifetime public servant doctor or scientist with Dr. Joseph Mengele. And instead of apologizing, Fox News just disappeared her. Ah. And I think you see that where the mainstream media is held to a completely different standard than the far right media. Oh, for sure. And by their own news consumers, too, if, if that's the right word for it. It isn't just this creation of this alternate information universe that is simply unchecked by by any kind of uh, external source. Whereas Democrats are mainly communicating with their base through uh, mainstream media, which tells a both sides story, appropriately so, that alone creates this lopsided information asymmetry. I was talking to one Democrat who I have, I quote him on record in a piece. He he essentially said at the very end of the Virginia race that, that we're just at a tremendous information disadvantage here. Youngkin just had his base juiced to the max for months by right-wing media pumping the most visceral stuff about critical race theory you can imagine in, into, into, into their heads. And, and he, as he put it, we've got to come up with a way to regularly communicate with our base and keep those relationships going in a way that we just don't do right now. This morning, and I'm sure you get all the newsletters, Axios declared, I'm sure you saw this this morning, right? Which are you talking about? We're talking about Axios writing about Purdue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why it matters. If many of Trump's candidates win, he'll go into the 2024 election cycle with far more people willing to do his bidding who run the elections in key states. That's exactly right. And this is something I've just been trying to get people to focus on, but I feel like I'm you know, spitting into the wind or something. But a lot of these people are running not to, you know, because they're loyal to the quote unquote big lie. That's just too euphemistic a way to put it, right? It just sounds like it's just about personal loyalty to Trump or avenging Trump for his loss. Right. It's about killing democracy. Some of them are running on an explicit promise to be willing to overturn future election losses that they hate. And, and so what is the rationale for David Perdue's candidacy? What is it about Brian Kemp that requires a primary challenge? It's the fact that Brian Kemp wouldn't help Trump steal the election. And, and same with re- the, the primary challenger, uh, Representative Jody Heiss, who's challenging Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, right? Brad directly rebuffed Trump's pressure on him to find 11,000 some odd votes to overturn a legitimate election. <laughs> and Jody Heiss is running on the grounds that, well, if you make me secretary of state, I will overturn elections in a way 
that Brad Raffensperger wouldn't. It's it's explicit. Yeah, we do have a situation where this is how democracies die. Yeah. I mean, that's it. This is how democracies die. You don't have free and fair elections. Game over. At the very least, it looks like a situation is shaping up where the Democrat is going to have to win by a, a substantial margin to make it cheat proof. Come to think of it, there's kind of two layers to it, right? They're going to have to win by a substantial enough margin to overcome the disadvantage, the counter-majoritarian disadvantage in the Electoral College, by enough to overcome the counter-majoritarian disadvantage created by voter suppression and gerrymandering, and on top of that, get it out of cheating range. Right. It is, they have no policy platform except the end of democracy. Maybe tax cuts for the rich. And tax cuts for the rich. But Democrats also like that. Well, the salt thing is very frustrating for sure. <laughs> What's crazier than QAnon? More outlandish than Pizzagate? And scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subasang and Will Summer check in on the movement of the radical right. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Andy Levy, who is your fuck that guy? Let's go. My fuck that guy is someone that never gets talked about. It's uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. And I feel like nobody pays enough attention to him. And he doesn't get any sort of <laughs> outside media Just coverage. Me. Yeah. He's, this, he's a senator from West Virginia, Molly. His name's Joe Manchin, <laughs> M-A-N-C-H-I-N. Does he live... On a houseboat? Yeah, he owns like a fleet of yachts or something like that, or an aircraft carrier, I'm not really clear. God love him, yeah. <laughs> and also coal, interesting. Yes, yes, he's a big yes. big coal guy. Uh, Christmas Who is among a big, us? Christmas yeah. is a big time of year for him. Yeah. So he, he was going around yesterday and he had a, he had a sheet, a, a little card that had a list of like things that he says the Democrats and, uh, have done over the past, you know, year or two. Uh, and also stuff that he said was done in a bipartisan fashion that he says the Democrats are doing a horrible job of sort of touting, uh, you know, accomplishments, uh, pandemic aid and stuff like that. And I don't think he's wrong that Democrats are doing a horrible job of touting the things that they do, because that's, you know, that's sort of in their job description. That's what Democrats <laughs> do. But I don't think his point is, hey, we did all these good things. His point is, look, peons, be, ha be happy with what we've given you because you ain't getting any more. And in other words, what he's saying is BBB is DOA and stop trying to get him to vote for, you know, the Build Back Better bill uh, or anything like that. And 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 that to me, that that was his point. It was not you know, hey, we've done great things. We're great people. It was like, this is what you got. Be, you know, be happy with it. And, and you know, you cannot have some more. He, he gets my fuck that guy for, for today. I have you beat. <laughs> it's called Republicans for National Renewal, a populist reception for the season. It's a wonderful nation starring I Want to Die, Blake Masters, who gets his money from Peter Thiel, Representative Madison Cawthorn, who needs no introduction, and the dumbest man in the United States Congress, my nemesis, representative from the great state of Texas's first district, one Louis Gohmert. <laughs> I have a question for you. By the way, these tickets are $35 to $100. Who is paying for this? But also, I'm starting to get worried that my making fun of Louis Gohmert is actually punching down. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, no, I, I well, I, I think you're right about that. It's, it's, uh, I don't want to say what it's like. <laughs> it is punching down for, you know, <laughs> because I don't, I don't, it, the good thing is I don't think he understands what you're saying. <laughs> that is the good news. Exactly. So I think you're okay. <laughs> Can I go on a divergent thought that I had the other day about uh, one of the other speakers, Madison Cawthorn? That video yeah. I keep seeing of him punching the tree, is this yeah. him like owning the libs because he heard that libs were tree huggers? He's like, I'll do the opposite. Like, <laughs> I'm a tree puncher. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm like what, what the hell is this about? It's nothing good. No, but I, I actually think he might give uh, Gomer to run for his money in terms of lack of intelligence. So Yeah, it's certainly possible. We've been discussing if uh, next term, if Gomer becomes AG, if uh, he takes the crown. Oh, man, if Gomer becomes AG. I mean, I don't know, Texas, it's, it's like, I mean. Boy. Yeah, there you go. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.